1: And here we are live. Ellen, it's so exciting and wonderful to meet you. I assume that you're in Richmond Hill in Canada.
0: Yes, just north of Toronto. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much for having me.
1: And I am uh, east of Tel Aviv. One of the wonders of the modern world is that I can meet you and interview you, even though you're like a zillion billion miles away, but we're very close, actually. Um, And I... I want to
0: share my condolences before we go any further on the The death of Tevya, the whole Jewish world is sad, and all his fans, fiddler fans, and his acting fans heard about this overnight, and we're very, very sad to hear the news. And
1: uh, I was uh, fortunate to meet him on several occasions. A wonderful human being, not only a wonderful actor, a wonderful human being. So, Professor Ellen Bestner uh, of Montreal, Ottawa, and uh, North Toronto. It's uh, wonderful to have you on the, on the show. And uh, my name is Mel Rosenberg, before I forget. And uh, I'm usually the host of the children's literature channel of the New Books Network. But um, today I'm, uh, I'm uh, interviewing you on another subject. Uh, you are the uh, incredible author of, uh, I'm gonna read this so I get the name right. Oh, okay, so Double Threat, Canadian Jews, the Military and World War II, uh, published by the New Jewish Press. University of Toronto Press, yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. a few a few years ago, and um, I am really apologetic. I didn't know about the book, and uh, one of the great ironies in the world is I have a dear friend in Greece, the uh, professor Vasiliki. Uh, uh, I want to get her name right, Yakomaki, I- and um, maybe I hope she's watching. Hi, Vasiliki, uh, and it's funny that a Greek uh, professor of anthropology should bring us together, but she's very, very keen on preserving uh, the history of Jews in Greece and Crete. And uh, she's in Israel more than most Jews are. So uh, she brought us together, Ellen Bestner, and uh, it turns out that uh, you have family in Ottawa. I'm from Ottawa. Uh, you grew up in Montreal. We have a lot of things to talk about. Uh, right. Talk and also
0: about- this Greek connection is very, very important. This Crete connection, right? That's how this is a World War II story, a uh, Jewish-Canadian World War II story as well. So maybe we'll talk about that as well.
1: Okay. So um, I'd, I'd be happy um, if you talked about that as well. Uh, but um, I guess a few words, first of all, about your really incredible book and, and what what brought you to to spend years writing it. This is a, a real labor of love. I, I don't want to say it's a labor of... Um, Intense love, maybe.
0: Well, it became a mission. Thank you. You're right. It's very intense and hasn't stopped because we we stumbled on this story. And although I'm sure many people in families in Canada around the world who had relatives, uncles, aunts, fathers, brothers, cousins, great uncles now who fought in the Second World War on either side, but mostly on the Allied side is what interested me. Um, knew or had heard that somebody died or that there was a uh, there's a box somewhere in their home with the photos and the uniform and the medals it wasn't a thing in our family either like we knew one of our aunts had served and i knew my father-in-law had but they never talked about it to me because I was the next generation nobody ever talked about it unless there were those who did there's a difference it's like holocaust survivors you either talked or you didn't say a word because of the trauma and of course you can't Equate the two? No, I would never do that. But so what happened was this: in the summer of 2011, I took uh it was a, a family bar mitzvah in Israel, and on the way back, we went to Normandy with my kids, our kids, and uh one of our dear friends, who is a Canadian Order of Canada military historian and author, Ted Barris, said, "You got to go to Normandy, and you got to see Juno Beach, and you have to see the Benezere Cemetery." So we slept the kids. They weren't that interested because as one was, they were young teenagers and it didn't mean anything to them, but we went to see the graves. And if you've ever been to a military cemetery, whether it's in Israel or anywhere, it's powerful. Even if you have no idea who's buried there. And so we started to walk through the tombstone rain, and we would see gravestones uh, every so often there was a star of David. So of course being, jewish we went to see who they were i wrote them all down all the names and one of the tombstones i'm telling you it changed our lives it changed my life because what was written on it the epitaph below the star of david was so emotional it literally he reached out and grabbed me from the grave after 70 years and said hey find out about me because it said he died so jewry shall suffer no more and I had to know, Jewry shall suffer no more. That's why he was there. That's why Jewish personnel all around the world, there were a million and a half Jewish personnel who served in the Allied forces, in the, in the Russian and, and the American, and 17,000 plus, close to 19,000 as it turns out, served in the Canadian forces. And yet they their story has really never been told before. It's always Hollywood saying, oh, the Americans did everything and even the Great Escape, they all, Steve McQueen or what have you, but it was a Canadian story. Great Escape was a Canadian story. All those guys were Canadians and there were Jews too. And of course, Jews were erased really from many, for many of the uh, accounts afterwards. So I found out about who this person was because when you go to these graves, uh, stones and at the cemeteries, there's really nothing there to tell you. They're very sparse in their information. It turns out that his nephew was the president of our In Richmond Hill, Ontario, named after him. And my cousin was best friends with a niece. How much closer than that can you get? And there was a suitcase full of pictures. And everybody knew that this was the uncle that didn't come home from the war. And how did I find more? So I started with him.
1: Then I found out his, his his name.
0: His name was George Meltz, M-E-L-T-Z, and he was originally from Lithuania's family, and there were 10 kids. They came because of pogroms. They moved to Toronto. He was the youngest of 10 kids. They had three sets of twins in the family, and he was the baby. And many of the brothers served in the war, but he was the one who was killed, and he was a Married, a very new groom; he had just been married for about eight months to a British Jewish you, you, you girl.
1: You wrote, you wrote in your book that nobody really knows who wrote the epitaph, but you think it's no, is, no. We uh, do know. We do know.
0: I found out. Yeah. Ah. So it was his war bride, his yeah. widow. She was yeah. a 19-year-old girl when he was killed because they he married in October '43, and by June of '44, he was in Normandy. And a month later, July 8th, '44, he was shot or We think either a sniper or stepped on a mine. Nobody's really sure. However, he didn't come home. And she was so brokenhearted about it, but also proud that he sacrificed himself to save the Jewish people. And 11 months later, the war was over. Not without great cost, but that was the motivation for many of the boys who went and women from Canada who went is to save the Jewish people from the final solution. They couldn't have known, Mel, what the extent of Hitler's evil design and his plan for the Jews was, because even though people kind of knew and it did trickle out in the early 40s, they only came face to face when they hit Normandy. But they had relatives, they had uncles, they had aunts, they had cousins in, you know, these countries that were not writing letters anymore and they were not alive. And people knew that if they didn't stop Hitler there, he would come to North America and do the same thing. Uh, wow.
1: So so then you went on this uh, this mission.
0: So after I spoke, found out who George Meltz's family was and started interviewing and I wrote it for the local papers, then people started reaching out to me. What about my uncle? What about my brother? I know. Some, and it literally became a flood. So I, I had to do something and I started reaching, reaching out and finding them. And I discovered this book. I'm gonna show it to you. I don't know whether your viewers and listeners can see it. It's a brown
1: the the viewers can see it, the listeners can't. So it's a
0: brown soft cover book. It's almost like a soft cover workbook that you get in school, soft cover brown. And it's called Canadian Jews in World War II, volume one and part two. And this was published by Canadian Jewish Congress, which was the Canadian lobby group for Jewish community in that time, up until the 80s, actually. And they published pretty much the biographies and the names of everybody who served and was killed, wounded, or taken prisoner of war, the ones that they knew about. They collected all this information and they published it right after the war. And also another volume on who was the bravery medals, because over about 200 Canadian Jewish men and women earned bravery medals for gallantry in the war from the king.
1: Ellen, Ellen uh, when was this published?
0: 1947
1: and then 1948 how hard is it for you to find these uh, books so
0: these exist and they were in a library in the archives in montreal and so i went there to research and found this and there's literally a, a list of you know um 700 and something names of those the casualties and i literally sat down with my mother who is 85 now And she's from Ottawa and has been involved with the community for many. She knew a lot of the last names. So I know this person's daughter. I know this person. Oh, I grew up. So, and also I knew some of the names. And then we started emailing and researching it. I interviewed people. It took me six years to find them, but it also took a publisher, Malcolm Lester, the late Malcolm Lester, who published None Is Too Many. I went to see him and I said, and None is Too Many is a famous book, which people might know about by uh, Irving Abella and Hirsch Troper from the University of Toronto, who proved that Canada's government in the 1930s closed immigration to refugee Jews who were trying to escape the Holocaust. And they sent most of them back. That was There was a very famous story on the MS St. Louis ship in 1939, before the war. They came here with 900 refugees and government said no. Turn them back. And and they turned them back. It's a it's a black mark on Canada's uh, reception of Jews and immigrants. I, I,
1: I, I would say it's one of many black marks. Um, we're going to go back to Canada in a few minutes. Um, right. And so uh, the, anyway, uh, that's
0: how we found all these names. And my publisher, Malcolm Lester, I said I had a coffee with him before he agreed to publish it, and I pitched him the story about the 450 who didn't come home. And he said, "No, it's a better story. Give me the story of the 17,000 who went." So. I went back to the drawing board a little bit after I had a little freak out, I have to say. And I started interviewing people who did come back, including my uncles and anybody that I knew who did come back. And so that's how it started because the story is the same, just the ending is different. So that's how the book was born. He agreed to publish it with the New Jewish Press, as you mentioned, which was an imprint that he founded in the Early part of uh, the last decade when um there were no more kind of Jewish publishers, and he thought, i'm gonna I'm going take the newest best books, and he took a chance on me because I am a journalist for the past forty five years, but never written an actual book um from scratch. So I was one of the first five that knew Jewish press published in 2018. He subsequently, sold, it was sold to the University of Toronto Press and that's where we live now.
1: Wonderful. So um, let's talk about, uh, his name was Friedman from from Crete, I can't remember. Fleischman. All right, so
0: your friend, Dr. Vasiliki, this is what happens, And this is still what happens. I am Canada's expert on this topic. There are several of us historians, public historians, and there's a difference between someone with a PhD in history uh, and then people who do this as journalists but not with the training of a historian but with a public historian and research skills. I'm a journalist. So there, uh, there's me, there's someone in England who does this and there's Operation Benjamin in the United States and there's another one in Australia. So what we do is people write to us and they say blah 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 there's a tombstone of a person I know is Jewish in these Commonwealth war cemeteries. There are all over the world, the British government and the Commonwealth created these cemeteries after World War I for for their dead, where they mostly are buried where they fell or near where they fell. Not the Americans. The Americans a lot of times brought the bodies home. But anyway, so back to Fleischman. So we got an email from the Jewish, uh, an intern at the Jewish synagogue, Jewish community in Crete. I didn't even know there was one in Crete. And she said, there is a gravestone of a fellow here named David, Fleisch, uh, e- e David Fleischman, and it's got a cross on it. We want to prove that he was Jewish because we know he was Jewish. Can you help? I'm like, of course he was Jewish. It's all in my book. I wrote about him. But because it's complicated. So this is what we do. We are sleuths. And what we try to do is get proof parents' marriage records, parents' burials, if it's in a Jewish cemetery, parents' um, whatever, uh, ancestry.ca, and uh, all kinds of websites. And the Canadian government publishes for free on its, uh, it's called the Library and Archives of Canada. You can get the military records of all the 44,000 Canadians who died in the Second World War online, or you can ask for it if you're a relative for free. Now, because of the pandemic, everything was shut down. It was much harder to get That is it's still hard to get. However, you can get their uh, attestation records, their wills, any documents that they signed up swearing their religion. Now, the trouble is, so David Fleischman, E. David Fleischman, came from Vancouver, and he was in the Air Force. And his father was president of the biggest conservative synagogue in Vancouver called the Shara ascetic. And his mother was Jewish. And he had another brother, Neil, who also served in the Second World War, and a sister. But in his attestation papers, he wrote down that he was not Jewish. He wrote down Protestant. And that's very common. In fact, we know from my research, Mel, that at least 2,000 Jews did that in Canada. Now, you can say, well, why would he do that? But the reasons are obvious. So what would you think
1: would be the reason? Well, we both know the reason. Do you want to tell everybody? Well, there's uh, two. Being being a Jewish in Canada um, was a, um, a black mark. Um, I, I want to wait a while before we go into anti-Semitism in Canada. Um, yeah, all right. But, but it, it was but
0: dangerous uh, for two reasons. Number one, and I found this out in my research because I interviewed hundreds of families and veterans. Every single one of them except one experienced anti-Semitism either before they entered the actual in uniform in the signing up process, even before they could get signed up, they were turned away from many of the regiments that weren't taking Jews. The Navy for sure was so British and very, very, oh, you know, we're only white Protestant people in in the Navy, so we don't take Jews. Um, And so it was very hard to get in. So that's one of the reasons they would have changed. Maybe some of them even changed their names. We know that they did. Sometimes they put down also for another reason. If they got captured by the Nazis uh-huh. and their religion was because it goes on your identity discs, you guys you know, know it as dog tags, but it would say H on it instead of COE for Church of England, it would say H. So you had to have it on your papers so they knew how to bury you if you ever got killed, which is the thing. But then for Jews, if you got caught and they found your dog tags, your fate would be very dark and deep. And that is, so they did it to protect themselves. And the problem was sometimes after they were killed, there wasn't anyone alive in the family or the parents didn't get the letter or the parents didn't want to answer or they were too distraught when the, the you know, they started to work on the the final gravestones and they the government sent them all this paperwork. So they never answered. and so or they were married to somebody who was not Jewish, and she or he wanted a cross on the tombstone. And so that's we what we think happened. They couldn't prove, In 1945, when they started doing these graves, 46, they couldn't prove he was actually Jewish because he attested as not, and so that's why he was buried in a communal grave with a cross. Also, because it was a crash, so there was very little remains left, and they just put them all in one grave, everybody on the flight on his plane. So I know his father was Jewish. I know because we have documents, newspaper clippings, uh, books about it. The problem is that's not good enough for you need to show them the parents were both jewish and then you have to write a letter to the commonwealth war graves commission in england and they evaluate it and we've had many successes i've done three for sure in the last couple of years that they changed to uh magandavid which was beautiful and the family is so happy and others they've left as is because as i said unless there's overwhelming evidence they won't do it so I'm trying to track down the family of David E. Fle- David Fleischman, and uh, trying to find anybody, uh, and we're still on the hunt to try to do that and help the people in Crete get the mug and on
1: his tombstone. So, so Vasiliiki is um, she's actually um, the um, the president of a uh, of a synagogue, uh, some uh, Jewish organization. She's not Jewish, um, but the, I I uh, I wish everybody was as Jewish as she is or isn't. Uh, so Vasiliki of Aristopoli for uh, bringing us together. Um, now, um, you have, uh, I, I saw lots of people in Ottawa. I, I, from Ottawa, I didn't know that you actually are from Ottawa and your family's from Ottawa. We could play Jewish geography forever. Um, and uh, that's not- Ottawa
0: the- actually sent a lot of people to the war. It was one of the communities where pretty much everybody who was Jewish went. There were families, for example, Rabbi Mazur, He was the family. uh, He had nine children and they had nine children from the Adath Yeshrun synagogue. And I think they sent nine, seven of them, two or two young. That's a lot. Um, My grandfather and his brothers, several. uh, We had three of the brothers who served in each one in the Air Force, one in the Navy and one in the Army. My grandfather was too old, but he did. These uh, these, these
1: these were the the Leafs. The Leafs.
0: So Jaime were, and Joe were, and
1: who were, were very prominent in Ottawa and uh, everyone knew them.
0: Right. And, you know, it was it's a lot to send almost everyone. And the smaller the town, the more the people where everybody went, all the boys went, all of them in Camp Sachs, Saskatchewan. It was a tiny, you know, it was actually a large Jewish community for those days. Pretty much every single person in every family went.
1: I, I saw some names from Ottawa that I remember uh, growing up, the saslovs um, and um, the Molasses are also uh, yes uh, and they feature in your book and 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 many others. But uh, here's the incredible thing. Um, so before I interviewed you, um, I reached out to my cousin uh, Mona, who um, whose dad was my uncle Jack Jack Rosenberg, and I, I said, Mona, do you have any information beyond this laconic little paragraph that your your dad was injured in? Uh, in Italy, uh, carrying a um, wounded soldier across a minefield, mm. and she said, uh, "Sorry, Mel. That's that's all we know." And here you have the book with my uncle Jack. And this is what know, happens. I do this. I didn't mean, know he. he pleasure. I, I, I haven't cried on the show yet, but I'm, I'm crying now. And he was wounded three times during the war.
0: Well, this is what it says. So you know how I was explaining about these books that were, this is an old copy. It's quite beaten up, but this is the one that's called Casualties. So there were about 790, including those who didn't come home, those who were wounded and those who were taken prisoner. And they're all in there. I've found more that weren't, but it's pretty good for not having computers in those days. They all had letters from the rabbis or the the chaplains, as they called them, the padres. There were 16 Jewish padres who went and so there's on page 111 it says here it is right at the bottom rifleman jack rosenberg he was and his his um service number was h six four eight three zero but that's not the h for hebrew it's Mm -hmm. just when his cohort
1: enlisted but it'll tell you you know what does it say he was from winnipeg regina wife
0: regina rifles of winnipeg was reported wounded in action in france on august 22nd 1944 a second time on October 9th. so they patched him up and send him back, or he wanted to go back, I don't know. And again on December the thirteenth of nineteen forty four, his mother lives at three thirty five Manitoba Avenue, Winnipeg.
1: That's that's
0: so nice. we can find more, and I'll, I'll, I'll after we get off the uh, the air, I will do my research and find more he, for you. He, but she can get his records, and you can okay. get his.
1: Well, my my grandmother it's from three thirty five Manitoba. And- Bella Rosenberg. And um, of course I remember uncle Jack growing up and uh, you're going to help us get this record of his uh, service. It's free.
0: And- Anyone can write away to the federal government for them on my website, ellenbesner.com, E-L-L-I-N-B-E-S-S-N-E-R.com. There is a, a cl- you can click to get the records and it shows you how to go online and either literally print out one page and mail it or fax it, or you can just do it online and request the whole record. If it's 20 years that he's been passed away, if it's less than 20 years, I'm sorry, you can't because of freedom of information rules. If they were killed,
1: we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch.
0: If they were Um, killed, then you can get them. Anyone can get them. It's not just family, but if it's just family, you have to show next of kin, but it's very amazing. You'll find out. All the hospital records, everything. And then you paint a fuller picture of what your relative
1: did. Mm-hmm. It's very moving. My, my my uncle Isaac Rosenberg was also in the army and uh, my dad was too young. Um,
0: Same with mine. Yeah. So but we had was, nine people in my family
1: who served and
0: I didn't even know. I mean, we knew auntie Daisy was one of the few women who served. Look, I,
1: I'm, I'm going to tell Jack's kids about Jack, you see, and that's uh, thanks to you. So, um, this uh, uh, this mission, uh, I understand now uh, even more than I understood when I was reading your book. Ellen, let's now talk about uh, anti-Semitism in Canada. Um, you know, I live in Israel. I left Ottawa when I was 17 because I was fed up with remarks that people made on occasion, like, too bad Hitler didn't kill all of you. This is in 1969, not in the 40s. And, you know, I, I, I say to... Um, People here, you have no idea how anti-Semitic Canadians can be. And they say, oh, no, no, no. Canada, it's such a wonderful country. I say, well, what do you know about Canada? Um, And I I really don't know what it is like now because I left 50 years ago because of anti-Semitism. But back growing up in, in Alta Vista in Ottawa in the 1950s and 60s, it was a terrible place for a Jewish kid. And this—we're not talking about thirties, and we're not talking about a park benches that you mentioned in your book. No Jews or dogs allowed, or the golf courses or the hospitals. Uh, this was everyday life for a Jewish kid in a um, non-Jewish area in Ottawa in the fifties and sixties. And people don't believe me. And I, you know, and I look at your book and I say, "Oh, it, it's not just me, is it?"
0: No, I interviewed, as I said, over three to four hundred veterans and. In- I could have written a whole book about everything that happened to them, including in uniform, uh, not just in the battlefield, but from their own comrades or from their superior officers who said the same thing. It's too bad Hitler didn't finish you or when Hitler gets over, he'll come to Canada and clean out everybody. Like This is what they were like, because Canada was a very... Unfriendly place for most Jews, especially because there was a lot of wide support for fascism in Quebec and in the prairies. Winnipeg had its own brown shirts in front of the market in the 30s. There was a rally. Um, There were fights and arrests because there were um, the Jewish community went out and tried to, you know, stand up to, uh, I forget his name, Uh, William Walker, I think, was his, uh, he was the leader of the brown shirts. So, I mean, there was a big strong, legacy. You want to know what it's like today?
1: And the-, and, and the numerous causes at the University of Manitoba and probably yes, all the universities.
0: Absolutely. They and, actually- my,
1: and, and, and my uncle, Charlie Hollenberg, not being able initially to be Dean of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Because yes. the...
0: There were quotas. The,
1: yeah, We won't mention the chair that refused to have a Jew as the Dean of Medicine until they were threatened by the, by the provost or the president. And Charlie Hollenberg told me, who's my cousin, told me this story. Mm -hmm. Yes,
0: many, many people experienced it. But here's the thing. After the war, even though it took time, what I was told and what I learned is that because people were in the slit trenches, the Americans call them foxholes or the barracks or the tanks side by side with their comrades or in prisoner of war camps, it became... More accepted, they understood what the Jews were facing, and when they came home, Jews entered political life. So Senator David Kroll ran for Parliament and became a senator, the first Jewish senator uh, out west. We had the human rights legislation was created by a former um, Prairie Jewish family who were the ones who were the Smith-built hats, you know, this White Stetsons, one of their, one of their dis- nephews was uh, in the war. And then he came home, became a lawyer, and he helped draft human rights legislation. Same thing in, in Ontario, Joseph Glass, First World War veteran, came back from the First World War, entered politics, and again, put in anti-discriminatory law that you about renting and employment. Uh, so it took time. But uh, from what I've read, that it is, it, 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 the war felt, and Senator Kroll said this I felt like I belonged and that Canada wanted and was sort of grateful. So, so, Ellen,
1: I I, one gone. second, I was born in 1951, so that's six years after the war. I never felt Canadians, um, accepted Jews, I never felt really welcome. Um, mm-hmm. is, is, is it, is it just, took time? We're, we're talking, it took time, no, we're, we're talking 20 time. years. So so are you going to make the argument that uh, Canada now is a, um, is a better place for Jewish people, that there isn't anti-Semitism in Canada?
0: No, of course, I can't say that there's no anti-Semitism in Canada. But what I can say, and I'm not an apologist for either political uh, or three of the political parties, the anti-Semitism is always there. It has been there. But the government's are spending money and effort, and they've adopted six out of the 10 provinces have adopted the IRA definition of anti-Semitism, which means it's policy and law now about discrimination based on that. Um, The governments are teaching Holocaust and anti-Semitism and racism in grade six in Ontario starting next fall. Many of the you'll see over the next couple of years, the federal government gave millions to Holocaust museums, Jewish museums, Jewish organizations to build new complexes in Vancouver, in Toronto, in Montreal, to teach tolerance and to teach acceptance and to teach what racism and bigotry and hatred can lead to. Whether this is going to be effective is a different story, but that's where they're going with it, and they're also helping the Jewish community by um, doing such as um, sorry, they're they're coming out and condemning when anti-Semitism is on a billboard or if it's uh, in a on a tweet or a candidates meet with a far-right German pol- political leader from the. Uh, Alternative for Germany party, as happened a couple of weeks ago here in Canada, the Conservative Party, three of them met with her because she was here on a tour with the Freedom Convoy of truckers. But her party is anti-Muslim, anti-gay and denies the Holocaust. They met with her at a lunch and took pictures and their own leader basically denounced it. They had to apologize. And just today on the news, we we learned that he tore a strip off of them in private in a caucus meeting. So these are, and he's in the opposition, Pierre Poliev. So I'm saying that where while the anti-Semitism is more um, subtle now, the kids are doing it in schools with Heil Hitler salutes in the classroom or making swastikas in the bathroom or things like that. It's not just sitting there and being allowed to stay. Our allies are fighting back. The governments are condemning it. School boards, uh, it's a whole different story. That's a bigger problem on campuses and on schools. That's a bigger problem. But it's more anti-Palestinian and anti-Jewish. That whole anti-Zionism, anti-Semitism has morphed a bit. And that didn't happen, of course, during the war because Israel didn't exist. I'm so sorry.
1: Yes. So um, we didn't talk very much about your life as a... um... You have had an amazing career as a journalist. You interviewed Prince Charles, uh, Prince uh, Charles, right? Or Prince Philip? Prince Philip, King Charles.
0: Yeah, now, he'll be one? King Charles. <laughs> um, no, I interviewed I got Prince, that. I got Prince that. Philip. You're interviewed wrong. me. Prince Philip interviewed me, which is pretty I, funny. Prince but Philip I've been a foreign correspondent. You. Yeah, yeah. I've been a foreign correspondent. Uh, I work for CBC, CTV News, The Globe and Mail. Um, I've been on television for many years and now as the host of the CJN Daily podcast. So since I was pretty much 18, I've been an, a reporter. Um, I come and from you, a family. you're also
1: a professor.
0: I taught I for a, 20 years yeah. of journalism. hmm. So I, I and I've been a foreign correspondent and traveled all over the world to uh, do stories. So I've been very, very lucky and privileged to see the world and and get to talk about it. And and now I focus mostly on I focus only on Jewish matters, which is something that I've always not been really able to do when I was working for mainstream media because you have to be neutral and what have you. And so even though everyone knew I was Jewish, you know, you had to cover everything and you couldn't wear your heart on your sleeve. And so here I'm allowed to do that.
1: Wonderful. Um, so we're not going to talk also about Israel, uh, which is, uh, going through a terrible, uh, mess at the pro at the present. Um, but, um, when I, I do want reading- to say
0: one thing though. Can I jump in for a minute?
1: You have to jump in. It's your interview.
0: So you mentioned, we don't want to talk about Israel, but there is a big Israeli uh, Israel angle here. And, and I have to say that because we're coming up to the 75th anniversary, of course, of the, of the founding of the state. So. There were 17,000 Jews who served in the Second World War. 450 didn't come home. But after the Second World War ended, as we knew, there was this whole aliyah bet. There was this whole um, movement to bring clandestine arms and um, ammunition to help the fledgling uh, Israel's defense forces, Irgun and Haganah and and Lehi, sort of fight and get ready to have a state in 46, 47, 48. What happened was, and I write about it in my book, that many of these highly trained now Jewish veterans, so pilots that had won the Distinguished Flying Cross like Dr. Bill Novick and Sid Shulemson, who was the ace uh, of Canada, he shot down 12 German uh, ships and, sorry, sank 12 ships and shot down seven planes. They had the know-how and they had the motivation and they were able to then come to Israel Clandestinely, secretly, and work with the IDF, and after the the state was declared in the war of nineteen forty eight war. So, of the Canadians, there were three hundred who served as machalniks, which I'm sure your audience knows, which means mitnadim, the laaretz, which is our, our, our,
1: our audience are mainly not Jewish people.
0: Okay, so it means uh, volunteers from abroad who were Jewish, mostly not all, came to help the state of Israel's forces uh, defend against the countries, Egypt and et cetera, that were uh, ready to attack. So many of these people saw what the Holocaust had done and were burning with desire and knowledge and motivation to go back into battle and use their skills because the Israelis weren't trained. Like they were just a bunch of ragtag people, right? They didn't have equipment. They didn't have anything. They bought from Czech Republic, they bought from Canada, they smuggled stuff in, all at risk, because if the Canadians, got, I mean, maybe they sort of wink, wink, new, new, but if they were caught fighting for another country, that's treason, right? So they would have been punished, but they they did it. And eight, uh, I would say in 1948, uh, we all know that the what the outcome was, the state of Israel won the war, 11 Canadians were killed in the 1948 war from this called the Smachal group. Um, Many are buried in Israel. Um, Some are Jewish, some are not. Even Buzz Burling is very famous. I'm not sure if your audience knows who he was. He was Canada's ace in the Second World War, not Jewish, but a born again Christian, very, very committed to the state of Israel. And Sidney Shulamson, who was Canada's Jewish ace, convinced him to go and fight he was the Eagle of Malta. I think his name was he was on tour and he was for the the bonds. Everybody he was this gorgeous guy. He shot down so many planes because he had these eyes that could vector where the Nazis Luftwaffe was going to be and shoot that way so that they would get it. Like, I'm not a pilot, but I, I he wasn't shooting where the plane was. He was shooting where the plane was going to be anyway. And so he fought for the IDF. But unfortunately, uh, because of sabotage, we think he was killed and he's buried in Israel now, too. So that's the little story. And there is something that your listeners might want to do, and you may know about this. This year, there's a new museum in Latrun, Israel, which is being opened and it's been in development for the last five years called the Museum of the Jewish Soldier. And it's being opened and it has several wings and it tells the story of not just the Jews from Israel, but also from the Soviet Union, from South Africa, from Canada, a little bit, not much, from the American side who came and fought in the Second World War, in other wars, and in Israel. Uh, And it's got artifacts from Canada there. And I highly recommend that you go when it's open. It's going to be beside the Tank Museum,
1: which is in Latrun.
0: So a little plug there for that museum.
1: Okay, so um, I'm going to ask you now a little bit of a difficult question. um, Because um, you say it's almost 75 years since... uh, the War of Independence, and uh, Israel now is in a predicament uh, where some people think that um, our very democratic basis is going to be demolished. And um, I came when I was 18. I left Ottawa. I came for a year. I loved it here. And I said, wow, this is the, the one place in the world where I can be Jewish according to my definition of what being Jewish is. Um, I don't have to go to synagogue if I don't like to. Um, I can do more or less what I want to as a Jewish person, celebrate holidays as a secular person. Um, and, you know, I, as, as a young kid, I went to synagogue every week. And um, here in Israel, I go to synagogue maybe once a year. And that's okay. Uh, and there's nobody here to tell me this or that. Um, and um, I don't have a rabbi here because I don't need a rabbi here. Um, but the I would say 99% plus uh, Canadian Jews, despite the Second World War, despite what you wrote about, um, chose to say, stay in, in Canada uh, and to live their lives as Jewish people in Canada. For me, this is, I, I sometimes I feel abandoned, Ellen, because um, I can say a lot of, bad things about Canada growing up and about anti-Semitism, but I can say a lot of wonderful things about Canada in its democratic ethic and um, its uh, ethos, uh, you know, as, a, as a, in education and in treating your fellow man, um, the ethos, not necessarily the way it's... It, and I, I feel that if more Canadian Jews had come to live here, uh, we would have a better country. And this might be self-serving, but I want to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I can't hear your thoughts. Um, now I can.
0: I can't, I'm sorry. I'm glad you asked me that question. It, it's an interesting point. And it was one that was actually on my show today on the CJN Daily, which was, we don't ha- we. I, I interviewed the 103-year-old rabbi of Toronto, Erwin Shield, who just turned 103
1: today, pooh, pooh, pooh.
0: Poo. And so the, he was- as, 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 we do,
1: as we do say, he's hundred and twenty.
0: Right. Up to 120. So we went to speak to him, of course, about everything. He's a Holocaust survivor from Germany, survived Dachau, survived Kristallnacht. Anyway, it's a long story. You should listen to the interview. It's wonderful. And then Britain kicked him out as an enemy alien, as they did with so many thousands of Jewish Germans in the 1940 year, got rid of them and sent them to these remote POW camps in Canada for a couple of years, which was harsh conditions. Not as bad, of course, as Dachau, but very harsh. Anyway, he made his life here. So I said to him, are you very worried about, are you bothered about what's going on in Israel? He said, I am bothered because we in Canada and in the United States, where it's safe and where we can live our lives as Jews, however we want, should not be having an opinion about what the Israeli government is doing unless we pick up our house and move there. So that's what he said. And so I'm going to defer to him because I don't want to get into trouble with anyone who's listening. However, uh, there are many Canadian Jews who are extremely, extremely worried about what is happening. There's thousands and hundreds of thousands that are protesting in the streets of Israel, as you know, for the last nine weeks, many Canadians are in there. And we do have a big population of Canadian expats who are helping to build Israel. Sylvan Adams, for example, and Shauna Goodman Sohn and Gil Troy. And um, the, there's an, an association called Association of Americans and Canadians in Israel, AACI, which I speak to often. Marvin Stengi. There's so many people that moved to Israel. Uh, Robert Gassner, uh, my friend Stephen Glazer. I could just spend the whole day telling about Canadians who moved there. So um, people can make their choice. They can visit, they can go, they can support from here. But we are all very worried about what is happening, whether you support more land for Judea and Samaria or you don't, that's your choice. And I'm not telling you how I feel, but um, we want to make sure that Israel continues to be the light unto nations, as Rabbi Rabbi Shield said. And at the moment, that's... Um,
1: We're having trouble being being a light unto ourselves. Yeah, it's a fraught question, but
0: it's one for Israelis to decide, not for
1: us. So with all the Canadians in Israel, uh, I feel um, I'm telling you that I feel abandoned after 53 years here Mm -hmm. um, by the uh, ones that stayed behind. Um, And. um,
0: some of our veterans, actually, that we talk about in the book—I'm going to get back to the book—they did make Aliyah. For example, Jerry Rosenberg. He fought in in the Navy in the Second World War. He was from Hamilton, and then he was on the Boharnoa, and that became the whole Atalit, uh incident. Where I'm not sure if you're uh, Altalena. I'm so sorry, Altalena incident. My bad, Altalena incident, where the Israeli uh, two different uh, Israeli freedom fighter groups for fighting against each other during the the 1948 war. And one opened fire on a ship that was carrying ammunition for the other one, and people were killed. And that was right off the beach of Israel. So that was a very black day for the Jewish state. But anyway, Jerry moved to Israel afterwards and stayed there and helped build the country. So that happened.
1: So, yeah, but we needed more Jerrys.
0: Mm-hmm. Well you have Ben Dunkelman and you had a lot of people in my book who helped build Israel. He was the savior of Jerusalem, not just Mickey Marcus, but there was a Canadian one too, right? And Ben Dunkelman who was but, in the uh, Gili- Canadian Brigade, right? 7th
1: Brigade. Kirk, you need a Kirk Douglas to portray, portray you in Hollywood.
0: Well you know, a lot of those people uh, that are in Hollywood, if you scratch deep enough on those films, uh, it's Canadians that were in those stories. And and one of the things I know you talked a little bit about how, if we have time for this, yes, sir. one more thing, um, you talked about how you usually do children's books. So I wanted to show your listeners and tell our, uh, show our viewers that in the Second World War, the Canadian Jews who served fought in all the major battles. D-Day, Ortona, in the Russian um, convoys, they they were in Hong Kong, they were in Alaska, they were in Africa, in Tobruk, and against the battles in Italy, of course, as you mentioned, your uncle was in Italy. That was a Canadian story. Uh, Italy was the Canadians liberated most of Italy. So the Canadian Jewish Congress, which was the main mobilizing force at the time in Canada, basically were the Canadian lobby group, they wanted to show kids that Canadian Jews were heroes in the war. So what they did is they commissioned these comic books that were put out in 1943 and 1944. There were three of them, and they gave them away for free to the kids to show who was fighting. And so this is a copy of one, and I'm holding it up. It's uh, photocopies, and it shows a football player. It shows a man in a kilt. Uh, with a uniform, and that would be David Kroll and the one on the left. And it's called Jewish War Heroes, Special Canadian Edition. And what they did was they hired these artists who did the main American ones that were like, Captain Canuck and I don't know, all these famous ones from the wartime. And so here's Ben Dunkelman. and they had all these real graphic novels to make the kids really interested in in who who they were and who their heroes were. So uh, that is a very interesting one, including one which was never published. I want to show it to you. It was called Some Never Die. These are the panels for it, uh, for Sergeant Samuel Moe Hurwitz, who, if you want to know some of the most famous Canadian uh, heroes of the Second World War, Moe Hurwitz was one of those. He won two extremely important medals and was killed in Holland. He was a tank commander and he was also a hockey player. In fact, he was scouted from Montreal. He played for the one of the junior teams in Montreal professional hockey in the in the in the 30s and 40s and he was scouted by the Boston Bruins because he was so good. He also had huge penalty minutes. And all of your listeners will know hockey is a religion in Canada, and so the Bruins scouted him to come down and try out for the Boston Bruins hockey team, which was a big deal. As you said, there was so much anti-Semitism for a Jewish boy to get, you know, accepted, invited to play professional hockey would was a big deal. So he said, "How can I play hockey when millions of my brothers are being killed?" And he turned them down, and he joined the tank corps. And he was killed. He knew he wasn't going to come back. He told his brother, Harry, that he wasn't going to come back. So his story is in the book and also in the comic, which was never published, sadly. Um, But we have a copy and we gave it to the family from the archives. So
1: the book book is so full of wonderful tales and and it's so um, down to earth and heartfelt. Um, And before we close, um, two of my childhood heroes, not because they were tank commanders, because they were so funny, and that's uh, Wayne and Schuster, uh, who also ended up uh, serving in Europe, and and being shot at. And here, this is my final question for Alan, because we can go on all day in Toronto and all night here in Israel. Um, so, um, as a kid, you know, I would watch uh, Wayne and Schuster. Oddly enough, mostly on Christmas, <laughs> which is ironic. Um, but you know, most the uh, most Christmas carols were written by Jewish people anyway. Um, and I'd watch for, uh, Wayne and, Schuster, and I didn't know that they were, in their own way, war heroes. And I never knew much about my Uncle Jack's service. And I'm wondering why do you have an answer for this? You know, this, um, the, the Jewish service in the war, which we should have been so proud of as kids, we didn't know about. How come I'm reading this book now and I'm 71 years old? I should have read it when I was 11.
0: I should have wrote it when you were 11. But unfortunately, the when, same thing. When happens. I was
1: 11, you didn't exist.
0: <laughs> I was a twinkle. They didn't know because here's the thing. First of all, PTSD. So we know now what that is, post-traumatic stress. In those days, veterans came home, they drank, they got divorced. They killed themselves early. They were wounded this happened, their, their, their family suffered or they were fine, but they had other things. So like my uncle, Leo, who the book is dedicated to, he was in the RCAF. He was in the, um, he was fixing planes in, in Europe. And I asked him, you never, I was told he never talked about it, not even to his kids. So when I started doing the interviews in 19 in 2014, just before he passed away, he was my first interview. And I said, you know, why didn't you talk about it? Why didn't you go to the veterans' like November Eleventh days in at the yeah. synagogue in Montreal? Why did you
1: come? Why did you come to the synagogue? Why didn't you? Come why didn't to my, you go to
0: the to my at school?
1: school? You know, school, I went to Hillel Academy. You know, right. why didn't
0: you speak? So he said. He, he actually threw away his uniform when he came home and he told me he always used to say he was in the secret service that's the family joke is have, did you serve why don't we know him about it? he says because it was a secret service which was a joke but it was his way of saying and then he explained to me he said I saw men that didn't have an arm they didn't have a leg they lost their hearing they or died they were disabled for life I came home just with hearing problems because he was working in the Air Force right with the planes I felt I was lucky. So I decided to build a life, make a family, make a living. I wanted to put it behind me because I was lucky. That was his way. And I think that was true for many. Now, there were lots of Jewish people, uh, Mel, who were in the uh, Jewish like, war veterans associations after the war, the Jewish legions. All across Canada, they had these groups um, where the Jewish men would come and they would march on, you know, with their Stars of David um, hats. And their blazers, what have you. But I don't think that the, anyone asked them. And it was too soon to talk about it. And then a lot of kids, your age, no offense, they rolled their eyes. Oh, there's those stories again. So it took the grandchildren who had to write projects for grade school and grade, you know, okay, go interview a veteran for remembrance day. So you call up your grandfather, your uncle and say, what did you do in the war? And it took people of my generation to ask, but the problem was, and the problem is I didn't start until it was so late that there were so few left. So that's part uh, part of my mission was to give voice to those who were no longer here to talk about what they did for Canada, what they did for the world. Canada liberated So many uh, survivors, they liberated uh, Westerbork, which was the camp where Anne Frank was transferred out of north of uh, Amsterdam. The Canadians helped, uh, they liberated Wucht, which was in southeastern Holland, which nobody knows that there's an actual death camp called uh, Sertengeboth, Camp Wucht. Canada's, there was a guy who liberated Bergen-Belsen, lots of Canadians, a thousand Canadians were at Belsen and helped the British after the war and and did what they did. So for them, and for those who are, are still alive but are not able to speak anymore, that's what this work is for. Because the Canadian government never recognized the Jewish contribution to, they have a whole page on their website, they did, until my book. So they they talked about honoring, you know, who served. So it was Black Canadians and Chinese Canadians and Japanese, very, very few. There was a lot of racism, a huge amount of racism against those groups, too. Women, hockey players, et cetera. But there was nothing about the 20,000 Jews. It was for 40% of all the Canadians who served, um... And 40% of all non-Jewish Canadians served. Also 40% of Canadian Jews served. And there were only 160,000 Jews in Canada at the time. Think about it. It was a minority of a big minority. And yet they went at great risk to themselves. Because if they were caught, as we discussed, and because their own people were being annihilated, and they were having anti-Semitism even in the army too. So their experience was unique. And until my book came out, there was nothing on the website about jewish service so now there is they graciously put a beautiful web exhibit up so that the jewish voice is there and my book is still being used Uh, lots of people are learning about it like your listeners and viewers and that's my voice is to give those their their stories and what they did uh you know legacy and so i'm really happy you let me do that
1: so uh as we do say which means uh more power to you. Thank you very and, much. Uh,
0: Thanks for your uncle for serving. Three times he was wounded. I can't wait to find out more.
1: Incredible. Um, so I've been talking with the wonderful Ellen Bestner, Professor Ellen Bessner, uh, about her uh, mission and her um, incredible book, Double Threat. Um, the subtitle is Canadians Use the Military and World War II. So uh, available Ellen, for
0: purchase at uh, many fine bookstores, you can go to my website, EllenBessner.com, through the U of T, through Amazon. Ellen, and-
1: Ellen with an I. Ellen with, Ellen an, with I. an
0: I. And if anybody has any questions, Mel, I would be happy if they reached out through you or to me directly through my website. I can help you find your family stories or whatever you'd like to know. I
1: Please send me stuff about my Uncle Jack.
0: And also, if they want to hear more, I have a, a website, as I said, ellenbesner.com. We, we, I
1: we will, like, this will be on Facebook and on sure. YouTube and the podcast, and, and we, you and I will share the links.
0: And also, if they want to listen to Canadian Jewish news about all things Canadians and Jewish, including Israel and Florida in the winter and Arizona, then uh, <laughs> you can go to the cjn.ca and find us. Or on all your favorite podcasts. It's been an honor to speak with you. Thank you so much for for having me.
1: I'm deeply honored. Ellen Bessner, thank you so much. I, I hope this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship.
0: Okay, take care.
1: Bye-bye.